I can tell you with certainty what I did that night when it was my turn. But I think it would do little good. Because what the world remembers, the actuality, the last revision is what counts apparently. So how many times did it take Aaron as he cycled through the same conversations, lip syncing trivia over and over? How many times would it take before he got it right? Three, four, 20. I've decided to believe that only one more would have done it. I can almost sleep at night if there's only one more. Slowly and methodically, he reverse engineered a perfect moment. He took from his surroundings what was needed and made of it something more. Who knows how many, if any, of those who have been recently brought low by accusations of various kinds of misconduct, all of which seem to have been conflated within the latest wave of social turmoil. Who knows how many will rise again. If I had to make a bet on only one making it, I'd say that Mr. C.K. has a chance at salvaging his career. But who knows. Think about the last really bad day you had. Not a day in which circumstances beyond your control did damage to you, but a day in which you either did damage to yourself through a small set of bad choices, or a day in which, after a long period of moving through life, oblivious to the negative effects your actions were having on others, all of your sins were exposed and you were shamed in the full light of day in front of everyone. Maybe you immediately resolved to do better and were quick enough to apologize and proclaim it. Or maybe it took some time for you. Maybe you struggled through crippling depression brought on by the loneliness of isolation coupled with self-doubt. But somehow you turned it around. Or did you? When you think about it, life is really just a series of repeated events. Within those events, there is variability, to be sure. But the nature of the events changes very little, if at all. If you work, it's likely you go to the same location every day. And if it's not the exact same location, the environment is pretty much the same. For most, anyway. Think of the professional athlete maybe a soccer player, who takes the field every match hoping to give the performance of a lifetime. And even if they take most of the boxes in their career on the long list of things to be achieved, for example, even if they win the league championship or set an individual record, they still return to the game with a mind toward playing the perfect match. For some, the perfect game is well-defined in their minds. For others, it's more of just a sense. Aren't most of us doing this every day? just going through the same motions over and over until we get it right. Even many of the most unambitious among us, those who might be described as terminally lazy, they have something they care about, though it may not be apparent to the casual bystander. The professional dancer can recall the greatest performance she's ever given, the time when she's got as close to perfection as ever. Even the local dance club hero has such a recollection. Have you ever been at a pub and listened to someone go on about the best game they ever played in high school, the almost perfect game they pitched, or the hat trick they scored, and thought to yourself, okay, so what have you done since then? Of course, in conversation you'd likely not put it so bluntly. Conversation might go differently. So, what did you do after high school? I took a job at the local factory for a while, but that was depressing, so I went into sales. You didn't think about playing in college or going pro? Dreamed about being a pro, of course. No college, though. Hated school. Yeah, going pro. Hmm. Well, in all things, as Clint Eastwood says, 
A man's got to know his limitations. Hey, that's pretty good. Thank you. Thank you very much. You'd like to say something about how we've gotten to the point where Clint Eastwood and Elvis impersonations are likely to be lost on most people, but again, diplomacy and all that. So, tell me about your best day as a salesperson. Well, it's not so much about the days as it is the months. You can have great days inside of really awful months. But a great month, man, that's where it's at in sales. Had my best month exactly eight years ago. I mean, I'd been salesperson of the month several times before that, but this was legendary. Well, in our office anyway. Do you think you could beat that month? Probably not. The economy's changed. Things are tougher now. Anyway, I've paid off my house, put both my kids through college. So, what is it you're passionate about these days? <laughs> you mean, what really lights a fire under my ass? Golf. I love golf. It's expensive, though. My wife wants me to give it up, but I can't until I shoot par at the country club course at least once. All around you, what you hear, see, smell, touch, and taste, it moves you. In the chaos of sensory overload, you find yourself simultaneously attracted to various aspects of it and repelled by others. In no way are you ever indifferent to it, though. People talk of overcoming their fears, but except in cases of fortunate accidents, most of us can't do this on the fly. We need to prepare ourselves mentally, steel ourselves against the coming of that which we perceive as a destroyer. Through conditioning, the repetition of prescribed processes, we make ready for the coming day when we can no longer, or no longer want to, turn away from entering the dragon's lair. Friedrich Nietzsche wrote about this journey toward inner tranquility, the desire to be at peace with the fact that all kinds of events will occur in our lives, good and bad. And even though tragedies will inevitably befall us, we shouldn't despair of living a satisfying life, but accept all that will happen to us as necessary. He called this amor fati, which translates as love of fate. In his work, The Gay Science, he wrote, I want to learn more and more to see as beautiful what is necessary in things. Then I shall be one of those who makes things beautiful. Amor fati, let that be my love henceforth. I do not want to wage war against what is ugly. I do not want to accuse. I do not even want to accuse those who accuse. Looking away shall be my only negation. And all in all, and on the whole, Someday, I wish to be only a yes-sayer, unquote. In saying, quote, to see as beautiful what is necessary in things, unquote, what does Nietzsche mean by necessary? Certainly it's necessary that a child will grow into an adult, and while some may lament the loss of youth, such a transition is something Nietzsche would want to see as beautiful. There is a necessity that all of us fear, however, and that is death. According to the passage above, we should conclude that Nietzsche would want to embrace lovingly the inevitability of death, to see the beauty in it. Of course, one should be careful here and not get the idea from this statement that he encouraged thinking that could lead to self-destructive behavior. He wouldn't want what Freud called the death drive to be manifested in your behavior. What's meant by lovingly embracing death as a necessary part of things is developing a positive attitude toward the notion that when putting off death becomes no longer possible, You'll accept it with a sense of serenity, a sense no different than the one you would have when, say, relaxing on a patch of grass in a field on a warm spring evening, watching the sun go down. But to see as beautiful those things which are initially seen as ugly, one cannot simply flip a switch in the mind and have it be done. No, this necessitates a conditioning, an approach to life where one is mindful at all times of one's attitude toward things. 
and where negativity is perceived, an attempt to impose a wider, wiser worldview upon what seems to be a childlike reaction is of the utmost importance. Of course, that would be no easy task in a dynamically evolving world, but as long as one keeps a mind toward this idea, one stands a chance of eventually coming to have the desired outlook on things as contained in Nietzsche's conception of amor fati. He also says in the passage, quote, I do not want to accuse. I do not even want to accuse those who accuse. Unquote. An act of denunciation, a public condemnation of another, is a declaration of one's intention to put one's will up against another's. It's natural to feel, especially if you're a disinterested bystander, that this verbal violence could easily become physical violence under certain circumstances. As that disinterested bystander, and sensing such a possible danger, your first instinct might be to accuse the accuser, as Nietzsche says. But that would mean you would find yourself pulled into a developing vortex of conflict, giving in to the so-called death drive. Nietzsche's solution is to remove oneself completely. He says, quote, Looking away shall be my only negation. Unquote. Now you might think, really? What a coward. You have a moral obligation here. But, Nietzsche might ask, And what is this moral obligation? Can you explain its necessity? Obviously, the inevitability of human conflict could never be negated by one taking a side in a conflict. Doing so is more likely to exacerbate problems of this type. Nietzsche says, looking away shall be my only negation. And what he seems to be implying here is that there's a high road to be taken, a path to be walked alone. If you read enough of his work, though, you'll see that he understands clearly that from time to time you'll come across highwaymen on your journey, and getting caught up in conflict can happen to anyone. It's living one's life in a way optimized for handling adversity that matters to him. Recall our discussion earlier of life as a series of repeated events, events in which, like a play with nightly engagements, individuals play their roles each time with the goal of giving the perfect performance. Nietzsche took the idea of eternal return and wrote in the following passage, quote, Fellow man, your whole life, like a sand glass, will always be reversed and will ever run out again. A long minute of time will elapse until all those conditions out of which you were evolved return in the wheel of the cosmic process. And then you will find every pain and every pleasure, every friend and every enemy, every hope and every error, every blade of grass and every ray of sunshine once more, and the whole fabric of things which make up your life. This ring in which you are but a grain will glitter afresh forever. And in every one of these cycles of human life there will be one hour where, for the first time, one man, and then many, will perceive the mighty thought of the eternal recurrence of all things. And for mankind, this always shall be the hour of noon. Unquote. This may remind you of the religious concept of reincarnation, whereupon death one is reborn into a new body according to one's accumulated karma, and Nietzsche was undoubtedly familiar with it himself. He mentions the wheel of the cosmic process, which sounds a lot like early Buddhism's wheel of existence. As an interesting aside, less than a decade after the above was published in Nietzsche's The Gay Science, French mathematician and physicist Henri Poincaré put forth what is now known as the Poincaré Recurrence Theorem, which has as one of its possibilities the idea that if the universe is a closed system, under certain constraints there would be a time, called the Poincaré recurrence time, in which the current state of the universe would be almost exactly repeated. This time, however, would dwarf the age of the universe, so it is no use concerning ourselves with it.
Still, though, the notion that you've been here before, listening to these words, thinking the thoughts you're thinking right now, is a compelling one indeed. But it should be made clear that this wasn't a claim Nietzsche was making about the nature of things. It was a part of a larger hypothesis, one which asks the individual a question that goes like this. If it were to become an inescapable fact of the universe that you were to have to live your life over and over again, where all the circumstances of your life would recur in much the same way each time, wouldn't you want to be pleased by this rather than be horrified? What would make you love your life enough not to be bothered by having to live it over and over again for all eternity? Remember, for Nietzsche, Amor Fati is bound up in eternal return. For him, when writing these words, what was his idea of a life that would make the prospect of having to live it over and over again bearable? In a passage given earlier in this episode, he was quoted as saying regarding his philosophical concept of Amor Fati, quote, I want to learn more and more to see as beautiful what is necessary in things. Then I shall be one of those who makes things beautiful. Amor Fati, let that be my love henceforth. I do not want to wage war against what is ugly. I do not want to accuse. I do not even want to accuse those who accuse. Looking away shall be my only negation. And all in all, and on the whole, some day I wish to be only a yes-sayer. Now, on the surface, the idea of being only a yes-sayer might call to mind the notion of a so-called yes-man, a corporate bootlicker, for example. But Nietzsche isn't talking about the kind of person who would say yes to being dominated and used to achieve someone else's ends. By being a yes-sayer, he means saying yes to whatever challenges life throws at you. If, for example, just to stay alive one would have to face and overcome a monumental string of challenges while others more privileged enjoyed contented lives with relatively few struggles, one shouldn't become bitter and resentful. One should regard such seemingly unfair circumstances as the way of things, and put one's will up against whoever and whatever stood in one's way of achieving one's own aims. Crying foul, blaming one's circumstances for one's failures, and giving up becomes the habit of the person with the victim mentality. Such a person gives in to feelings of bitterness and resentment. Such a man, Nietzsche calls the indignant man in his book Beyond Good and Evil. He writes, quote, For the indignant man, and he who perpetually tears and lacerates himself with his own teeth, or in place of himself, the world, God, or society, may indeed, morally speaking, stand higher than the laughing and self-satisfied satyr, but in every other sense he is the more commonplace, less interesting, less instructive case, and no one lies so much as the indignant man. Unquote. You're likely quite familiar with the indignant man and woman, a quick tour of various social media sites and comment threads attached to online news articles these days reveals no shortage of them. Many of them have given in to what Nietzsche called the slave morality, and we'll get into what that is in future episodes. But for now, I'll leave you with one more passage from Beyond Good and Evil. Quote, he who, prompted by some enigmatic desire, has, like me, long endeavored to think pessimism through to the bottom and redeem it from the half-Christian, half-German simplicity and narrowness with which it finally presented itself to this century, namely in the form of the Schopenhauer in philosophy, he who has really gazed with an Asiatic and more than Asiatic eye down into the most world-denying of all possible modes of thought, beyond good and evil and no longer, like Buddha and Schopenhauer, 
under the spell and illusion of morality, perhaps by that very act, and without really intending to, may have had his eyes open to the opposite ideal, to the ideal of the most exuberant, most living and most world-affirming man, who has not only learned to get on and treat with all that was and is, but who wants to have it again as it was and is to all eternity, insatiably calling out da capo not only to himself, but to the whole piece and play, and not only to a play, but fundamentally to him who needs precisely this play, and who makes it necessary, because he needs himself again and again, and makes himself necessary. Unquote. Thank you for listening. Until next time.